Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to be in John chapter 14 this morning. And while you're turning there, let me let you know about a couple of things going on at Coastal. First of all, to the men, we have our men's cornhole tournament and breakfast. So uh, there's not two things that normally go together, but we're doing it. So next Thursday, May 14th at the Yorktown campus at 8 a.m., we're having breakfast and a men's cornhole tournament. Fellas, if you're interested, this is going to be a great time of fun and fellowship. You can sign up online at gocoastal.org events. This will be a great time, guys. I hope you'll come out. Next, I want to let you know about our spiritual formation classes. So from starting in May all the way through August, all across Coastal, we're going to have lots of great classes. I'd encourage you guys to get involved to take a spiritual formation class. This is kind of our small group off-season, so it's a great opportunity to go to a class together as a small group and to grow. So I hope you'll check that out. And I want to selfishly plug a class that we're doing here called The Meaning of Marriage. So for the month of June... On the Wednesdays in June, we are having a spiritual formation class where we're going to be reading the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller together and meeting to discuss it. So that it says six o'clock. I want to do 630. Okay. So if you come at six, we can hang out for a little bit, but uh, I want to start at 630 for this class. Uh, And we have books available uh, because we're going to be reading it together over at the welcome desk. We have several copies. We're selling them at the cost to us, which was only eight bucks. So it's not expensive. Uh, I hope you'll come to the class, get a copy of the book because we're actually the first week going to be talking about the first couple of chapters. So make sure you get the book ahead of time. If you're a Kindle person, that's fine. Just order it on there. Uh, But this is going to be a great opportunity and you don't even have to be married to come, especially, you know, if you're you're young and single and thinking about marriage, what a better way to prepare than that. So I hope you'll come out. This is going to be a great opportunity, a great spiritual formation class. I saved the best for last, and I think this is why probably a lot of y'all are here today. Uh, We are having right after this service a lunch to be a fundraiser to help send our students to camp. And so right after the service at 12 p.m., I think they're out there setting up now. You probably smelled the barbecue smoking when you were driving in. So I am really excited. This is going to be a great time of fellowship. So I hope that all of you will stick around. The lunch itself is free, but we are asking for donations to help send our students to camp. Uh, It's going to be a great opportunity. So I really hope you guys will come. I really hope we can have a great time of fellowship together as a church family. All right, John chapter 14. We are in the second week of our sermon series called Now. So on Easter Sunday, we celebrated the amazing reality that Jesus Christ conquered death, that he bodily rose again on the third day, conquering death and hell forever. And so now, these three weeks after Easter, we are asking an important question. Now what? All right, Jesus rose from the dead. Now what? Last week, we talked about what Jesus is like now as the resurrected king. What is he like? And this morning, I want to ask the question, where? Where is Jesus now? And then next week, Brian is going to come and talk to us about what Jesus is doing now as he is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And by the way, on your bulletin, I know it says at the top, Brian Briggs, we actually uh, had switched our weeks. I know you guys, when you saw me come up, were like, oh man. Uh, So you got to come next week uh, to get Brian. So, um, and also I was on a retreat until Tuesday. I didn't get my notes into the bulletin folks in time. So this week you got to take your own notes. Uh, I'm so sorry about that. It'll still be on the screen. Anyway, where is Jesus now? And John 14 tells us he's in his father's house. He has gone to the place that he has prepared for us. And he tells us in John 14, the way to get there, namely himself, that Jesus is the way to the father's house. 
So this morning, I'd like to talk to you about home. Now, what is home to you? And we make a difference, don't we, between home and a house, right? Because a lot of us, we've lived in a lot of different houses in our lives. We've lived in apartments. We've lived in a lot of different places. But when you say home, usually one place comes to mind. And the word home, it brings up images of feeling safe, feeling secure, feeling relaxed. Home is the place where you can take your shoes off, where you don't have to put on a front for anyone, where you feel like you can really relax and be yourself. It's where you feel safe and secure. Speaking personally, Gloucester is home for me. I've all, I'm born and raised here. I've always lived either in or around Gloucester. You know, even if the Lord takes us somewhere else one day, Gloucester will always be home for us. But maybe for some of us in this room this morning, a home doesn't have such warm, fuzzy feelings, does it? Maybe there's some of you, you come from a background, you moved around a lot and you never, you kind of struggled to feel at home. You feel like you've never really put down roots. Even worse than that, maybe there's some of you who had a, a rough childhood or rough home life. And so the word home doesn't bring warm, fuzzy feelings to you. Maybe as we talk about the father's house this morning, maybe you didn't have such a good earthly father. And so that's not comforting or exciting to you at all. What I hope to show you this morning is that Jesus has gone home to be with his father and he has prepared the way for us to come to a home that is better than any home this, home, this world could ever imagine. That he has gone home to the father who is more loving and kind, the ultimate father of whom even the best earthly father is but a dim reflection. So this morning, here's the main point of the message. Only Jesus can give us peace now and a home in eternity. Only Jesus can give us peace now and a home in eternity. So with that in mind, let's read together the word of God in John chapter 14, verses one through six. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you were going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Lord, even as we just sang that incredible song, as we're looking forward to that day when surrounded by the angels and the saints, we are singing, holy is the Lord, where we're lifting up the lamb who was slain. Lord, as we look forward to that day where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death, and we are in your presence worshiping you forever. Lord, our hearts long for that day. Lord, we groan along with all of creation for the day when you will make all things new. So Lord, we pray now that as we spend this morning reflecting on the Father's house, as we think about eternity this morning, would you fill us with that hope and joy and would that change the way that we live here today? Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a little bit of context, John chapter 14. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've been in John a couple of times, so some of this might be review. But the Gospel of John is really broken up into two sections. Chapters 1 through 12 cover the span of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then chapters 13 through 21 cover the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And so in chapter 13 is when the Last Supper begins, when Jesus is up in the upper room with his disciples. So I want you to think about everything that took place in John chapter 13 as we're approaching John chapter 14. Jesus comes in, he's eating with his disciples, he washes their feet. And then it says in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And at this point, Judas is exposed as the traitor. After this, Jesus tells them that he is getting ready to leave and where he's going, the disciples can't follow. Peter says, Lord, wherever you go, I will follow. And Jesus says, before this night is even over, you are going to deny me three times. So now, before we even get into John 14, put yourself in the perspective of these disciples. These are very likely young men. I think we overlook that sometimes. I mean, John went on to live another 60 years. So these are probably pretty young men, maybe teenagers, early 20s, in the room with Jesus. They've been following him for three years. They had left everything to follow him. And now, almost in an instant, they find out one of them is a traitor He's getting ready to leave and they can't come with him. And Peter, who's like the spokesman of the group, the leader of the group, is going to deny Jesus. So you can only imagine what's going through their heads at this point. They're probably in deep emotional turmoil. Their hearts are very troubled. They're very upset at everything that they had heard. And so it is within that context that Jesus says the beautiful words of John chapter 14. And so I wanna highlight three things that we learned from John chapter 14 this morning. And the first is this, Jesus gives peace to troubled souls. Jesus gives peace to troubled souls. Let's start with verse one, where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, this is a command. He's saying, hey, don't do that. Don't let your hearts be troubled. But, but the amazing thing about Jesus is that his commands are also invitations. This is a command, let not your hearts be troubled, but it is also an invitation into peace, into joy, into something better than having a troubled heart. The word troubled in the original language literally means stirred up. I thought that was interesting. If you read in John chapter five, for example, about the man who wants to get into the pool, the same word is used of the waters of the pool being stirred up. So I get this mental image. You ever feel like your mind is racing and it's spinning in a million different directions and you just feel like you're all spun up, you're all stirred up. I think that's the idea here behind this word. It is a heart that is in inner agitation or distress. And as I started to study this word in the gospel of John, something became very, very interesting to me. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is approaching the tomb of Lazarus, it says he was deeply moved. He was troubled. John chapter 12, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he was troubled. And then we just read it in John chapter 13, verse 21, when he was getting ready to expose Judas as the traitor, it says that he was troubled in spirit. So three times in the last three chapters, we learned that Jesus was troubled. And now what is he telling the disciples? Let not your hearts be troubled. Is this like a a do as I say, not as I do kind of thing? No, no. Here's what I think is going on. I think Jesus is taking the trouble on himself. He's saying, I will be troubled so that you don't have to be. Jesus was troubled because he was getting ready to bear the weight of sin and guilt on behalf of all of his people. And he's saying, I'm gonna take care of you. So even though I'm leaving, you don't have to let your heart be troubled. And listen, I am confident 
If I'm confident of anything, I am confident that there are many troubled hearts in this room this morning. There are many people who came in with a heart that is troubled, that is stirred up today. How many of you, man, you don't have to raise your hands unless you really you know, like to confess or anything, but how many of you came in with a heart that is troubled with anxiety and worry this morning? You know, studies show something like 40 million or about one in every five American adults have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, and that's just the people who went to the doctor. I mean, how many people are anxious? We live in an incredibly anxious and worried society today. We're always worried about something, worried about the future, worried about this. We live our life with the what ifs. What if this? What if that? What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? Listen, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. What about stress? I think I read recently that how many physical illnesses are caused by stress? It's crazy. I mean, we are so stressed all the time. We're stressed about work. We're stressed about family. We've got 6 million things that we got to do and we don't know how to rest and we're freaking out and we're stressed out to the max. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. How about one more? How many of you came in this morning with a heart that is wounded? You have been hurt deeply by the sin of another person and your heart is bleeding this morning because you've been wounded. And there's bitterness and there's anger welling up within you and your heart is in turmoil because of it. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now that sounds like a nice sentiment, but how can we get that? I mean, otherwise he's just saying, hey, let not your heart be troubled. It's like when your spouse is mad and you say, calm down. Like that's not really helpful. Uh, like, thank you very much. Like, I mean, Jesus, okay, Jesus, you say, let not your heart be troubled, but I'm troubled. What am I supposed to do about it? That's the second half of the verse. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, here's a couple of things about that. First of all, he's putting himself on the safe level as God. Believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, I am just as much an appropriate object of your faith as God is. So that's a subtle way Jesus is putting himself on the same level as God. But here's the important point that I wanna make here. The pathway to peace is believing. The pathway to peace is believing. And we don't only see that here. I love Romans 15, 13. This is what it says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Let's pause there. If that's where it stopped, it wouldn't be that helpful. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Oh, thank you, Paul. That's a nice thought. Here is how we get the joy and peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. When your heart is troubled and you are in search of joy and peace, how do you get it? By believing the promises of God and having them applied to your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how. That's where the peace comes. By believing the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit applying it to our hearts. So let me encourage you, if you have a troubled heart this morning, you've got to get into this book. You've got to mind the riches of God's word, find the promises of God that speak to your situation. And by faith, you cling to those promises with all you've got. And you trust that the Holy Spirit is going to massage those promises deep down into your heart until your heart is filled with peace and joy. You know, elsewhere in this same chapter, Jesus repeats these very same words, but adds a little bit. John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. He tells them twice in case they missed it the first time. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And the reason why is because he gives them his peace. The peace of God which surpasses understanding is a gift. It's a gift that Jesus gives to his people. It's a gift that the world can't give you. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world has a lot of different tactics for dealing with a troubled heart and they don't work. Usually it's about, I'm gonna medicate, I'm gonna numb, I'm gonna try to get around. There's a million different things that we try to do to numb the troubled heart in the world. But only Jesus can give peace, everlasting, eternal peace to a heart that is troubled. Jesus gives peace to troubled souls. And if that's you this morning, come to him. But next, Jesus gives us a home with him forever. Jesus gives us a home with him forever. Let's look at verses two and three. Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So let's break this down a little bit. The, the father's house is heaven. He's saying in my father's house, that is in heaven, there are many rooms. I take that to mean there is plenty of space for all of God's people. You know, I think of it in this, this using the imagery of a house with many rooms to communicate the idea that heaven is home for you. It is the father's house and there's plenty of room. This is gonna comfort them in their turmoil. The focus here is on the presence of the father, the father's house, and on the adequate preparation. And we come to this famous phrase, I go to prepare a place for you. That's a fascinating little phrase. And I think we can often get confused here. I think when we hear Jesus say, I go to prepare a place for you, we almost picture Jesus is like Chip Gaines or something. Uh, and he's up in heaven and heaven's a fixer upper. And he's on an HGTV show working on heaven, trying to get it ready for us. And when he's done, he's going to come back for us and bring us there to the heaven he just fixed up. I don't think that's what's in mind here when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. But rather, I think the preparation is what Jesus did in order to make us able to go to heaven. It is the way that he prepared, the way that he is getting ready to talk about. This is the way uh, Colin Cruz, a commentator on the Gospel of John, put it. When Jesus said, I am going there to prepare a place for you, we should not think of him as returning to heaven and having arrived there, setting about to construct rooms for his disciples to occupy. Rather, it was by his very going, by his betrayal, crucifixion, and exaltation that he made it possible for them to dwell in the immediate presence of God. The imminent departure of Jesus, which so troubled the hearts of his disciples, was in fact for their benefit. So Jesus prepared a place for them to in their father's house by going. He's going to the cross in order to prepare a place for them. Jesus is the way that we can get to the father's house. And now I wanna linger here for a minute. I wanna go on an intentional rabbit trail here. Uh, let's leave John 14 for a minute. And I want us just to meditate for a little while on the father's house. What is heaven like? That's a very popular question, isn't it? As Christians, we think about that all the time. What is heaven like? What is our Father's house like? Especially, man, we've seen so much sickness and so much death in the world in the last couple of years. It's been on everyone's mind. We've seen it in our own church family. 
And I think it would be valuable for us to spend a few minutes thinking about what is heaven like. But before we do that, we gotta ask the question, how are we gonna find out? Because I don't know, I'm not really trying to find out from immediate experience anytime soon unless the Lord has that for me. Uh, So how am I gonna find out what heaven is like? Should I grab one of the best-selling books about people who say they've been there and come back? What about Audio Adrenaline? Y'all remember that song, Big House? A couple of you guys? What's heaven like according to Audio Adrenaline? It's a big, big house, lots and lots of room, big, big table, lots and lots of food, big, big yard, we can play football. You know a man came up with that heaven, (laughs) right? Because what's he talking about? Food and football, which, amen, I'm all for it. But, But listen, we don't need the best-selling books. We don't need the corny 90s Christian rock as much as I love it. We have God's word. God told us what heaven's like in his word. Now, here's the deal. It might not say everything we want it to say, but it says everything we need it to say. It's not gonna scratch every itch. It's not gonna satisfy every curiosity and every question that we might have, but God has told us what we need to know in order to be faithful to him today. So I want us just to look briefly into God's word and ask the question, what is heaven like? And out of the gate, I think it's helpful to make a a distinction here uh, between the intermediate state of heaven and the eternal state of heaven. What do I mean? So the intermediate state is where you go if you die now. It is where people go in between, Jesus, uh, in between Jesus now and Jesus coming back, if that makes sense. That is what we talk about when we say the intermediate state. That is when your body goes in the ground and your soul goes to heaven. The eternal state is after Jesus comes back and we're resurrected and we live in a new heavens and in a new earth forever and ever. I only make that distinction because I think sometimes when we think about eternity, we get this mental image of like a floaty place where you're sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Uh, Whereas I think that the Bible is very clear that we're gonna have bodies in eternity. We're gonna live on the earth in eternity. I think that's an important thing uh, to make there. So take that for what you will. But let me give you four things that the Bible teaches us about heaven. First of all, heaven is where God is present to bless his people. Heaven is where God is present to bless his people. Now, on the one hand, God's present everywhere. And we call that the omnipresence of God, that God is already everywhere. But God's presence is manifested in different ways at different times for different reasons uh, in different places. And heaven, according to Wayne Grudem, is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. Heaven is the immediate presence of God. It is the unveiled presence of God where we will see his face, we will see his majesty and his glory, and we will be overwhelmed at the sight of it. Heaven is where God is present to bless his people. But next, heaven is where we will be free from sin. Heaven is where we will be free from sin. This is what it says in Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In heaven, we will be glorified, scripture says. That means that we will be free from both the temptation to sin, we will be free from the capacity to sin. We will be eternally free from sin. And listen, if you've been a Christian a long time, this might be the best part, amen? How many of you are weary of being a sinner or just tired of temptation? How many of us can say along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm tired of being a sinner. I don't know about you. 
I am looking forward so much to that day where I am freed from that weight and I can just worship God freely. Heaven is where we will be free from sin, but also heaven is where we will be free from suffering. There's gonna be no more suffering. Revelation 21 verses three and four say, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more sickness, no more pain, no more war, no more injustice. We will be totally and eternally free from the brokenness of this world to enjoy it as God intended it from the beginning. And all of this, this is just the side dishes. We're about to get the main course. We're about to get the heaven of heaven because yeah, being free from sin and suffering is great, but here's the main thing. Heaven is where we will exalt Christ forever. Heaven is where we will exalt Christ forever. When we will see Jesus face to face, unveiled in his glory and majesty, and we will worship him forever. One of, the mo- one of the mountaintop passages in the Bible is Revelation chapter five, where we get just the curtain peeled back a little bit and we get a little glimpse into the throne room of heaven and we get to see the worship service that's going on in heaven even now. And this is a taste of what that looks like. Revelation five. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's what makes heaven heaven, that Jesus is there and that we will worship and exalt him forever. And I want you to think about this. As a believer, the best worship service that you have ever been a part of in this life is just a tiny foretaste of what this is gonna be like just a tiny foretaste of how amazing it will be when we see Jesus and we're singing with a thousand generations as that song we just sang says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So to connect this back to John 14, when Jesus says, and when, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is the place that is prepared for us. This is the father's house. And here's the key. Notice the shift in John 14. He goes from, this is the father's house to I will take you to myself. And then finally in John 14, six, no one comes to the father. It starts with the father's house and then it's eventually the father. What makes heaven heaven is not the place, it's the person. It's that God is there 
that we get to be with him forever and ever and ever. What makes heaven heaven is not the streets of gold. It's not even seeing our lost loved ones, as amazing as that is. It's not the football. It's not the zero calorie Krispy Kremes or whatever it might be. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus, that he comes again and he brings us to himself. He brings us to the Father. That all sounds awesome, doesn't it? But we got a really important question to ask. How do we get there? How do we get there? What is the way to go to heaven? That's what we're about to study next, that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. Verse four, Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said, always count on him. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is one of the most famous passages of scripture, maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible. John 14, six. This is how we can know the way to God. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going? And Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. So I want us to break down John 14, six for a moment. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First of all, Jesus is the way. This is important. Jesus does not provide a way to get to God. Jesus is the way to God. He doesn't say, here, follow this ritual and you can get to God. Hey, obey these laws and you can get to God. He doesn't give us a way to follow. He is the way. The way is a person. It is only through Jesus, through a relationship with him that we have access to God, that we can be in the presence of God. Ephesians 2.18 says, for through him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It is only through Jesus that we can have access to God. He is the way. But next, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. He is the one who defines what is true and false because he is true in himself. Jesus is, as we spoke about last week, the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. And as such, Jesus is truth. And Jesus declares what's true and what's false to us in his word because his word is truth. So Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth. And then finally, Jesus is the life. You guys remember what we studied on Easter, don't you? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we saw then that Jesus gives us both abundant life here and now, and Jesus gives us eternal life into the future. Life is only found in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And now I wanna point something out here. I wanna show you the most important word in this verse, and it might not be the word you were expecting. The most important word in this verse is the word the. The most important word in this verse is the word the. Here's why. Let's just change it out and see what happens. Jesus said to them, I am a way and a truth and a life. Kind of changes the meaning a little bit, doesn't it? Jesus didn't say that. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He doesn't even say, I am the way, the truth, and the life for you. But if other people have another way, that's fine. 
No, 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 no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making an incredibly exclusive claim here. Jesus is saying, I am the only way to God. That Father's house that we just talked about, this glorious heaven that we just talked about, Jesus is the only way to get there. Jesus himself is the way. And what I just said is deeply offensive in our culture. Deeply offensive. The idea of what we call the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus Christ and faith in him is the only way to be saved. We live in a culture that is perfectly fine with you saying Christianity is true for me. Christianity makes me happy. It gives me peace in my life. That's great. But the minute as Christians, we start to say Jesus is the way and the only way. And apart from him, there is no salvation. That's deeply offensive. And even in the professing church, guys, I, I feel as, as a pastor, part of our job is to warn you about false teaching. In the church, there are those who would say that in the end, everyone goes to heaven. This is a teaching called universalism. And let me be clear, that's heresy. That's a false gospel. There's only one way and it's Jesus. He was incredibly clear here. We don't have the right to change what Jesus has clearly said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And not just here, there are multiple places in the Bible that teach the same thing. Let me give you just two more. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And also 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also, that verse is saying, if you got Jesus, you've got God. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to know God. And listen, I get it. It's easy for us to look at this and say three words that we learned when we were two and we've been saying ever since. That's not fair. fair. We look at this, we go, that's not fair. God, that's not fair. What about all these other religions? What about everything else, God? That's not fair. How can there only be one way? And listen, here's how I respond to that. We don't want fair from God. We don't want, don't be asking God for fair. I mean, listen, we're sinners, y'all. Like, like we are sinners. If we got fair from God, we'd go to hell. Like, like that's what we deserve because of our sin. For God to enter into this world and die on a cross in order to save even just one sinner is grace. It's grace beyond more than we could ever imagine that God would make a way at all. How dare we look at Jesus hanging on a cross and tell God he hasn't done enough? How dare we look at God and say, that's not fair. When God said, this is a way I'm reaching out to you, though you deserve nothing but my wrath, and I am pouring out my grace on you. This is better than fair. This is grace. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So listen, guys, I believe that at the same time, Christianity is the most exclusive faith in the world, but it's also the most inclusive faith in the world. And before you start saying I'm contradicting myself, let me explain what I mean. Christianity is the most exclusive faith in the world because there's only one way. His name is Jesus. Through faith in Jesus Christ, that is the way that we're saved. That's exclusive. 
but it's also the most inclusive faith in the world because it's for everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus says, whoever comes to me will not perish, but has everlasting life. The gospel's for everybody. The way is narrow, yes, but that narrow way is for everyone who believes. And here's the deal, guys, and this is where the rubber meets the road a little bit for us. The exclusivity of Christ is why we should care about evangelism and missions. To put it another way, if I were a universalist, I would not care about evangelism or missions. And here's why. Why would I get on a plane and spend my money and risk my life to go to a third world country to tell people that they're fine? to tell them that they're on the way to heaven. Why would I get up early and spend all week studying and preparing to come and preach this morning just to tell all of us that we're fine and see you in heaven? Listen, the exclusivity of Christ, the reality that Jesus is the only way to salvation is why we give. It's why we preach. It's why we go because we have a message that the world needs to hear. This is what Romans 10 says. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? Because remember, we were saved by calling on the name of the Lord. How are they going to call on him if they have not believed? And then Paul kind of traces out this logic. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Do you follow Paul's little logic train there? He's saying they need to believe in order to be saved. That ain't going to happen unless you go. Then he quotes from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what they heard from us? Verse 17 is the key. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Guys, this is why we're so passionate about evangelism and missions at Coastal, because Christ is the only way. And because there's a world out there that hasn't heard, and because they haven't heard, they can't believe, and because they haven't believed, they can't call on him. That only comes through hearing the gospel. That's why we go. So let me leave you with a few final takeaways this morning as we're closing. First of all, let me invite you this morning to receive the peace that Jesus gives. Receive the peace that Jesus gives. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you're in Christ, there is a peace that is available to you that Philippians says surpasses understanding. I like to think of that as a peace that doesn't even make sense. You ever had a circumstance that was so horrible and you're wondering, how am I so at peace right now? It doesn't even make sense that I feel this peace in my heart. That's what is available to us through the gospel It's a peace that doesn't make sense to people looking on from the outside. It's a peace that can face whatever circumstances come in this life because we have put our faith in the one who has overcome the world. This is a peace that the world can't give you and that the world can't take away from you. It's a peace that is a gift from Jesus. So let me invite you this morning to let your heart not be troubled, but be filled with the peace that Jesus gives. And you remember how we get it by believing in the promises of God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let your heart be filled with peace this morning. Second, look forward to the home that Jesus has prepared. No matter what home was like for you in this world, no matter what father was like to you in this world, 
We are going one day to our Father's house where we will be with him forever and ever, for all eternity, without sickness, without suffering, without sin, and we will exalt Christ forever and ever. That hope is not just a, man, that's really gonna be great one day kind of hope, but that's the kind of hope that changes the way we live today. Shouldn't that perspective change the way we view just about everything in our lives? As Jesus put it, shouldn't we be storing up treasures in heaven rather than working for toys on earth that the moths are gonna get to and that are gonna rust and one day will either be in a yard sale or a landfill? Like, shouldn't we be working and investing in things that are gonna matter for eternity rather than just focusing, spending every minute of our lives focused on collecting toys and getting more pleasure in the here and now? It changes everything. Here's a great question to start asking ourselves. We can do that in many different contexts. Start asking ourselves, in the light of eternity, does this matter? In the light of eternity, does this matter? Or is this gonna matter a billion years from now? And nine times out of 10, the stuff that we're all stressed about and all worked up about, the answer is gonna be no. Because we spend the majority of our time worrying about things that are not gonna last beyond this life. Let's store up treasures in heaven. Let's live for eternity now. Final point this morning. With this, I'll invite the worship team to come back. Let me encourage you, invite you, plead with you to embrace Jesus as the only way. Jesus Christ is not a way to heaven among many ways. Don't believe the lie that there are many roads and all of them lead to God in the end. Jesus is the way. The way is narrow and few are those who find it. Jesus is the way to God. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. All of us, man, we're sinners. We have rebelled against God. And because of that, what we deserve is his punishment. We were made in his image to live for his glory. And we failed in that task. We've fallen short. But God loved us so much that instead of giving us fair, he gave us grace. Jesus came into this world. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later so that everyone who trusts in him will one day be at home with him in his father's house. That's the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you want to, man, we're gonna have some prayer team members who are gonna be up at the front. I'm gonna invite them to go ahead and come now. If you wanna talk to someone about the gospel, how you can have a relationship with Jesus, let me invite you. You can come up during this last song. You can come up after the service. And even to the rest of you, let me just kind of put this plug out there. Going forward, our prayer team members are gonna be here. If you have a prayer need on a Sunday morning, if your heart is troubled, if you will, and you need to talk and pray with someone, they will be available for you during the last song and after the service. So I wanted to make sure you guys know that. Uh, so let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much that you, Jesus, are the way. That because of you and you alone, we can have a relationship with God. Lord, we thank you that one day you're gonna bring us home to the Father's house. And until that day, Lord, let us live with an eternal perspective, keeping our eyes on you, trusting you each and every step of the way. Lord, let our hearts be filled with peace this morning instead of trouble. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand and let's go out singing this morning.